Good morning. Uh, if you missed it, my name is Joe Johnson, and I'm the campus minister with RUF, uh, our denomination's campus ministry at Mississippi State. And it's a pleasure to be here again. I've been here a number of times and always love, uh, love coming here. Uh, RUF Mississippi State, we are, uh, this semester, I like to give you a snapshot every time I'm here of what, what's going on there. We are doing a sermon series every Wednesday night at Dorman Hall on dating and relationships. And um, as complicated as those can be and what God's word has to say about those things. And uh, it's been great. It's been wonderful. It's been a very fruitful season for our ministry. Um, but I'm even more thankful that I get to come here every now and then and just get to preach out of Genesis because I'm tired of talking about dating. So thank you for giving me that opportunity uh, to come here and simply look at Genesis 28 with y'all if you have your Bible. Genesis chapter 28. And every time I'm here I've said we're going to look at a different passage in the book of Genesis focusing on one man in the book of Genesis, a man named Jacob, uh, the grandson of Abraham. Uh, goes Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob. And Jacob is very near and dear to my heart, as I've said, because he is the grandson of Abraham and knows the promises of God. Actually, the promises of God rest upon Jacob now. He is the main man that God is working through in this world in Genesis chapter 28. And yet, at the very same time, when we look at Jacob's life, uh, we see a great deal of failure and mistakes. Uh, that actually the point of Jacob's life, as recorded in Scripture, is not for us to emulate. Uh, though he actually does show faith in this passage. This is the first good thing we see Jacob do in Genesis 28. But the point of Jacob's life actually is to see how God works through someone like Jacob. Uh, the relentless grace that pursues him. And then it lets us have the thought that if God can save and change and use a guy like Jacob, then maybe he can do those things for us, people like us as well. And so we are in Genesis chapter 28, the third story in Jacob's life where he dreams a dream and God intervenes and we begin to see a heart of stone melt. So Genesis 28, we're starting in verse 10 and going to verse 22. This is God's word. And Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night, because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep. And said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. There is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of the place Bethel. But the, city of the, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear 
so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Amen. The grass withers and flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let me pray and ask for God's help. Uh, Father in heaven, uh, we uh, probably can't imagine what it's like uh, to have a dream in the middle of nowhere, to see a vision like this. And yet whatever it is that Jacob did see that day, it changed him. Uh, Lord, help us to see your word and be changed. Jesus, help us to see you more clearly and find you more beautiful. In Jesus' name, amen. A friend of mine is a pastor, and he's a pastor of a, a very large church. And I heard this story not from him because he would never tell me a story like this, but I heard it from someone in his congregation uh, that there was a little boy in his congregation that was born uh, and was prohibited from coming to worship services or being baptized uh, because he was uh, diagnosed with cancer at a very early age. He was very sick in and out of hospitals. The church, of course, would go visit him. Um, and around three years old, uh, very wonderfully, was on the road of health and was able to then go to church with his family. And so a date of the baptism was set. And the family began to explain to the little boy what baptism was, the significance of it, how beautiful it is, but really they were explaining uh, the choreography of it. Uh, we're going to go to the front of the church and the pastor is going to take you and pour some water on your head. He's going to pray and say some words and then we'll sit down. And the little boy, three years old, told his family, I will not be doing that. I don't want to do that. That sounds really scary. And the family was trying to ease his concerns. The whole church knows you and loves you. I know it's a lot of people, but it's going to be okay. But it wasn't the people that he was scared of. What the parents found out was that he was terrified of the pastor. He was terrified of the big black robes. He was terrified of being around that pastor. And so the family heard that and called the pastor and said, look, he's probably going to cry. Uh, he's scared of you. He's scared of the robes. Um, but just kind of know that we just wanted to give you a heads up. Kids do that. My daughter cried at my seminary graduation because I was wearing a robe that day. There's just something about it that's scary to them. And so my friend could have responded to that phone call by saying, that's fine. Kids cry. It's going to be okay. But this is what he did. The night before the baptism, he shows up to that little boy's house. And he was fully dressed in his Sunday morning garb. He had the tie, he had the robe, he even wore the microphone around his ear. Walked into the little boy's house, let him touch the robe, let him get comfortable around it, started playing games on the floor with this little boy, read him bedtime stories, put him to bed that night and said, I'll see you tomorrow. The next morning, the boy was called up for his baptism and proudly walked down the aisle went up and saw his friend the pastor was baptized and everything was great. Now, before I even connected to the story, that's the kind of pastor we all want, right? Because here's what that pastor did. He condescended. He was a powerful, scary figure in this boy's eyes and so he came low to meet that little boy into his fear. And when he did that, something changed in that boy's perspective. Everything changed. That's not a scary man anymore. This isn't a scary situation. That's my friend who read bedtime stories to me last night. I'm going to be okay. It was his condescending and entering into the little boy's fear that changed his perspective on everything. 
Now, in this passage, what we have is God entering into a little boy named Jacob's fear, allowing him to know you are not alone. I am with you. And everything about Jacob's perspective changes. Actually, in knowing God and knowing how he works in this passage, we will see a forever change in Jacob. He's not perfect from here on out, but he understands a little bit more of who his God is and how he works. Because this is what Jacob sees in this passage. He sees a clear picture of grace. And when your heart catches hold of a clear picture of grace, a clear picture of how God works, you cannot help but respond accordingly. It changes everything. And so what I want us to see this morning as we walk through this passage is when we see a clear picture of grace, we must respond accordingly. When we see a clear picture of grace, we must respond accordingly. So two things as we walk through this. I want to simply look at what does Jacob see? It's a strange dream. What does he see? And then secondly, how does he respond? All right, what does he see and how does he respond? So what is going on here? A very famous passage. We would just talk about it as Jacob's ladder, though it's very much God's ladder and not Jacob's ladder. But to sort of catch up with the story, Jacob is now on the run. Uh, the last two times I was with you, we looked at uh, the first two stories of Jacob's life recorded in Scripture, and they are not good. Uh, Jacob steals a birthright from his brother for a bowl of soup. He then steals a blessing from his dying father. And his older brother, minutes older, twin brother, vows to kill Jacob. And so he meets with his family, and they all agree it might be time for Jacob to leave for a little bit. But what we're going to see is that Jacob now has to leave for 20 years. This is the beginning of an exodus of Jacob's life. He'll never see his mother again. He doesn't know if he's going to see his father again. He doesn't know when his brother might kill him. And Jacob has to leave to go to his uncle Laban's house where they tell him, go find a wife there. And we'll get to that next time I'm here because that's a mess of a story as well. But in this season, what we see is Jacob, probably a teenage boy, in the middle of nowhere, all by himself. Uh, nothing but broken relationships behind him, nothing but uncertainty in front of him. That Moses writing this text actually says the sun sets on Jacob. There's no mention of the sun rising again for 20 years later when he has another encounter with God in a very similar place as this. But we're in a dark season of Jacob's life. Uh, all alone, not knowing what's coming. He's shown very little faith so far. And I wonder if you can relate to this. In one of the darkest seasons of Jacob's life, this is where God decides to enter. That this little boy, sleeping on a rock, which I believe Moses puts there just to show you how uncomfortable he is and how he has absolutely nothing right now, that's when God visits Jacob in a dream. And the dream is very simple. The dream is of a ladder. And, and on that ladder, we see angels descending and ascending upon it. And then God gives Jacob a bunch of promises. And then when Jacob wakes up, he's a completely different person. And we can explain no better than he wakes up and worships. So the question is, what does Jacob see in that dream? What is it about that dream that completely changes Jacob's life? And I want to say he sees three things. And the first thing that he sees in that dream is a great reversal. A great reversal. So the Hebrew word for that ladder is actually a stairway or a ramp. But whatever it might be, it is a mode of transportation to get from a low elevation to a high elevation. And as soon as we see that word, as soon as we see that description, 
another story from Genesis should come to mind. Uh, Genesis chapter 11. Another stairway. The Tower of Babel. But completely different than this ladder, completely different than what Jacob sees. This is not a stairway or ladder coming from heaven to earth. This is coming from earth to heaven. This is not made by God, but made by man. This is not in order to rescue a people before a people to rescue themselves. That in Genesis 11, man got together and said, let us make a name for ourselves and build something that takes us to heaven. And that God sees that pride and sees that arrogance and sees that self-salvation. And out of his grace and fatherly discipline ends that process. That he confuses the people with their languages, spreads them throughout the world. It was actually for their good for God to do that because here's what they missed. They completely misunderstood how God worked. That God is not waiting for his people to get to him, but we have a God who comes to his people. That is what Jacob sees. He sees a ladder from heaven to earth and angels ascending and descending upon it. What he sees is a picture that heaven is open for sinners. What he sees is not what our hearts are tempted to make, which is Christianity is about us getting to God, but that Christianity is the good news of God coming for his temple, relentlessly pursuing his sinful people. What Jacob sees is God reversing the curse and heaven open for his people. What he sees is a picture of grace. But how often are our hearts wanting to build Genesis 11 instead of believing Genesis 28? How often do we want to make the Bible and Christianity and Jesus something that we do instead of the good news that takes all of our life? What Jacob sees is a beautiful reversal. And how do I know that that's what he sees? It's because Jacob has done nothing to earn the presence of God here. He's done nothing but sin. He's done nothing but run away, nothing but cheat. He's a little boy in the middle of the wilderness sleeping on a rock and God condescends in order to give him these promises. This is a picture of grace, a great reversal of what our hearts want to do. But it's not just the reversal of Genesis 11 that he sees. Jacob also sees protection. He also sees God's protection. Look at the passage with me again. Verse 13, and behold, the Lord stood above the ladder and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give you into your offspring, and to your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring, all the families of the Lord will be blessed. Verse 15, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. I would imagine if I was a teenage boy in the middle of the wilderness with his family falling apart behind him and really nothing promised in front of him, I would assume those words, I am with you, meant a lot. That Jacob, in the midst of loneliness, in the midst of darkness, in the midst of danger, in the midst of uncertainty, doesn't just see a ladder with angels on it. He sees his God with him. And actually, I am not a Hebrew scholar. I am not claiming to be a Hebrew scholar, but I read a book by a Hebrew scholar who talks about, in verse 13, when that is translated that the Lord stood above the ladder, you might have a footnote in your Bible that says that that could be translated, the Lord stood beside him. 
It's very hard in Hebrew to, to think about what is the object of that verb and, and what is exactly it means. But Robert Alter, the Hebrew scholar, actually says he thinks it's not God standing above the ladder watching, but it's actually God's presence beside Jacob. But whichever it is, here's what we know. Jacob finds out he's not alone in this moment. He actually gets to peek behind the curtain of God's work. He gets to see what's really real, that he's not alone in the middle of the wilderness, but God is at work amongst his people to do something in this world that's absolutely amazing. He has come to claim a people for himself. And he is not alone. That God is with Jacob. Where do we need to hear that we're not alone? How lonely do we feel in the midst of bad news, in the midst of family worries, in the midst of diagnosis, in the midst of all of what could happen in this world that we feel like we're alone and we're supposed to handle it on our own? Where do we need to see that what Jacob saw is true for us today, that God is with his church, at work in his church, at work in his people's lives, that even asleep in the middle of the wilderness, God is relentlessly at work. And all he had to do was show Jacob just a taste of it. Jacob sees he's protected. God will actually show this to Jacob again, that he's not alone, though he keeps thinking that he is. But the last thing that we see, that we see Jacob see, is he sees the promises of God. This is verse 13, which I read a little earlier. That I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, and the land that you lie will be given to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and east and north and south and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now that should sound familiar to a lot of us because that is the exact promises that God gave to his grandfather Abraham. It's the exact promises he gave to his father Isaac and it's the exact promises that God gives to Jacob. That my question here is, when Jacob hears these promises, why does he respond the way he does? Why does he call this place awesome? Why does he all of a sudden begin to worship when we've had no indication of Jacob's life being worshipful at all? He knows these promises. When God makes a covenant with your grandfather, the family talks about that. He knows what these are. Why does he respond in this way? Because Jacob has never heard those promises from the mouth of God. Jacob has heard those promises recounted. He's heard those promises from his mother. He heard those promises from his dad, but he had to dress up like his brother to get them. But finally, he hears them from the mouth of God. He finally hears them from the place, the person that he has been wanting to be with and be blessed by. Jacob hears those promises. But I think it's even more fascinating is how he responds at the end of that first paragraph. Verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. It's that word phrase, gate of heaven, that first shocked me. He doesn't see a gate. He sees a ladder. He sees angels ascending and descending upon it. What is he talking about here with the gate? Well, I think Jacob is beginning to piece together what exactly he's seeing. That he's seeing nothing short of than the picture of salvation, of God rescuing his people. Because that is exactly how Jesus interprets this text in John chapter 1. 
That if you remember that story in John chapter 1 where Jesus is collecting, bringing in his disciples one by one or two by two, and one of his disciples brings a man named Nathaniel to Jesus. And Nathaniel comes to Jesus and Jesus immediately says, oh, I saw you underneath the fig tree a while ago. And Nathaniel's response is to worship Jesus. Surely you're the Messiah. And Jesus has this amazingly comical response as, like, you're going to worship me just because I said I saw you under the fig tree? Actually, you're going to see way more than that. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. A title that Jesus claims for himself, a title of the Messiah that comes from the book of Daniel. In other words, what Jesus says here in John chapter 1 is, Nathaniel, do you remember that weird story in Genesis 28 where Jacob sees that dream and a ladder and angels on it? That was about me. I am the ladder. I am the bridge between sinful man and perfectly holy and righteous God. That I am the one who's not waiting for you to come, but I have now come. Come clinging flesh, bearing flesh, to come with my people, to condescend to them, to bear their sins and shame, to clothe them in a righteousness that is not their own. That no one can come to the Father except through me, and yet I came here to do just that. I think Jacob is blown away here because he is seeing the full picture of redemption that is coming and the good news of the salvation of God's people through Jesus. In other words, Jacob in this dream sees the gospel. Genesis chapter 28. He sees the gospel and he cannot help but worship God. And before I move on to his response... How Jacob actually responds to this, which there's good and a little bad in Jacob's response. I just simply want to ask the question, do we find the gospel as beautiful as Jacob did that night? Are we blown away by this truth of what God has done for his people and it's been the plan all along? That Jacob's seeing it in shadows, but we as his people on the other side of the cross get to see it in its great fruition. That God has come to claim sinful man for himself and make him right before his presence. Do we see the beauty that Jacob had a dream? We now know what that dream is. And we worship that Savior this morning. Jacob sees the gospel. A clear picture of grace. But now secondly, I want to talk about how Jacob responds. How Jacob responds. Because he does wake up from the dream. The dream does end. And I can say nothing short than Jacob wakes up and worships God in awe of what he just saw. Nothing in Jacob's life should indicate that he should do this. But so blown away by the beauty of salvation, the beauty of redemption, the beauty of God's work, he worships. And what does that mean? In other words, what does Jacob's worship look like? And at first, I think, takes an ingredient of awe. Jacob is in awe of God. He actually simply declares God awesome. This is the place where God works. I didn't know he was here and he's here. And Jacob is in awe of who God is. And I think I can say this because I have been a Presbyterian my entire life. I was baptized right here. I have been in Presbyterian churches my whole life. I'm a Presbyterian minister. I went to Reformed Theological Seminary. I have all the credentials, I think, in order to say this. Presbyterians are not good at all. Uh, Presbyterians like books, and I love books. Presbyterians like explaining things. Presbyterians like order, and I love that. 
But we struggle with simply being in awe over who God is and how he works. I struggle with just simply being speechless before who God is. But actually, isn't that the appropriate response for finite man created by God and seeing all that what God's done, that the first aspect of worship simply has to be, this is amazing. This is incomprehensible. I have no good response to this other than how great is our God? Do we have the proper response to something amazing? A number of years ago, uh, there was a story that came out of the Boston Symphony Orchestra. I am not an orchestra fan. I simply saw a YouTube video that led me to tears. The, the Boston Symphony Orchestra a few years ago, uh, they were um, the greatest musicians in the world performing pieces by Mozart uh, and a very uh, well-to-do crowd, tuxedos buttoned up, very polite. And in this crowd, I did not know this, but at this sort of concert, you were not supposed to clap between songs. Uh, you're not really supposed to make any noise. You're supposed to just sort of take it in. And after a certain piece that crescendos at the end of the song that's just absolutely beautiful, some of the greatest music the world's ever produced by the greatest musicians the world has, it ends to complete silence. Except for a few seconds into that silence, there was a voice of a little boy in the back of the room that simply screams, wow, wow. And all of a sudden there was a murmur in the crowd, the conductor turns around, and then there was a little bit of laughter, and then there was applause, and then there was a standing ovation. In other words, his response elicited people coming to tears and standing on their feet and clapping. And after the orchestra, the concert was over, the conductor went to go find that little boy. He wasn't mad. He just wanted to know what elicited that response. And this is the amazing thing that he found that it was an eight-year-old boy who was taken to the concert by his grandfather. And that little boy was on the autism spectrum and was nonverbal. And that his grandfather actually said, that might have been the fourth or fifth time I've ever heard a word come out of his mouth. And the reason why that's so beautiful is because that boy actually responded appropriately when the crowd wasn't that he saw and heard something so beautiful that whatever obstacle was there for him to get that word out, he could not help but not just get it out, but to exclaim it at the top of his lungs. That's the proper response to something amazing. Do you see and are you in awe? And as you grow in your Christian faith, are you more in awe of the gospel, not growing cold to it, that it was the good news that the day you were converted you needed and now you've sort of lost it? Do we grow in our awe of who God is, his holiness and his righteousness and his goodness and his grace? Jacob's worship involved awe. Do we worship like that? Do we find him amazing? Do we find his work amazing? And we never cease to be amazed by the gospel. But it's not just awe. We also see Jacob's aspect of worship as remembering he also includes remembering in his worship. Look with me in verse 18. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of the place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at first. 
Okay, so what do we do with this? Jacob takes that pillow rock that he had and he makes some sort of memorial statue to it. Actually, as one commentator pointed out, he seems to make a little mini stairwell to remember what he saw here. He renames the place and vows to come back and visit this place and worship, which he will. But one aspect of Jacob's worship here that I think we need to apply to ourselves is the aspect of remembering God's work and God's faithfulness. Jacob does not want to forget this moment. How could he? He had a dream about God where God speaks promises to him. But in our worship and admiration of the Lord, do we, are we practicing the Christian practice of remembering? Remembering not just what God has done in the Bible and not just the gospel, but remembering what he has done in our lives in years past. Remembering his faithfulness to us and our children. Remembering how he worked even through dark seasons. Remembering what he has done in our lives. That when we are in the middle of the wilderness with only a rock for a pillow, we can remember that the God who did those things is still the God today and he remains unchanged. Do we practice the art of remembering? I tell my seniors every spring, before they leave Starkville, uh, that before they leave this place, they need to practice this art of remembering what God has done in their four or five years here. To remember that God worked in this place. He did good things in this place, and no one could tell me otherwise, and I want to remember them for the rest of my life. Do we remember how God's worked in our families? Do we cling to the promises of Scripture? Do we remember even when things get to seem to be going awry, that the same God who took on flesh, that hung on a cross, is the same God in our lives at work today. Nothing has changed. Actually, we come together to worship corporately, not just in awe of God, but to remind ourselves the truth that we so often forget. This is who our God is. And he is at work today. And he will be at work tomorrow. And the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. He has awe, and he remembers. But then lastly... His worship involves devotion. This is when it gets a little shady with Jacob. Look at the deal, I'm going to put that in quotes, that he makes with God in verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I will come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up as a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that I give, uh, all, and of all that you give me, I will give a tenth to you. Now there's something devotion here, right? This is unlike Jacob. He's giving away things. He's not trying to cheat things. He's not trying to grab more things for himself. He is giving away his life. He's giving away his belongings. He is saying God will be his God. But doesn't it just sound weird to read it? That in other words, he says, God, if you do all these things, then you'll be my God. And God, if you give me these things, I'll give a tenth back to you. And I have to say, I had to read eight commentaries to figure out if this was good or not. And the bad thing is, is four said it was good and four said it was bad. So I needed to buy a ninth. But we can at least say this, that Jacob is taking a step forward in sanctification and growing in holiness. That Jacob is giving, which we've never seen before. But what I wish Jacob had said here is, you are my God. Because you are my God, and I will give you everything, and you will be my God forever, and I will serve you forever. And there is reservation here because Jacob isn't quite sure, but we see him take a step forward that in his worship of God, there is a giving of himself to the Lord. I think sometimes 
that we are scared to talk too much about grace because we think people will hear grace and they will go do whatever they want. I think that means that we still don't understand grace. It cannot lead to independence. It cannot lead to an unethical life. It cannot lead to us being our own God. But actually when God shows up to Jacob and he gives them grace upon grace upon grace and asks for nothing, Jacob's natural response, even amongst his own sinfulness, is to give himself to the Lord. And that if we actually understand the grace of God, we cannot help but see this is the one who not only made me, but made me for him. That the greatest life I can imagine will be following this God and being more in amazement and awe and worship of him. That it's actually grace that changes us. It's grace that leads us to give more of ourselves to God. It's grace that takes a heart of stone and makes it more into a heart of flesh. I hate to even use this story because I have not read this book, but I did see a movie adaptation of it, of Les Mis. And the great story that's been used in sermons and sermons before of Jean Valjean, who was released from prison after years and years of stealing um, bread and food for himself, that he was a shady criminal character, and then comes in contact with a priest, a bishop, who actually, out of grace, invites him into his home. And even that night, John can't help but do the things that he used to do where he steals from the kind old bishop, steals flatware from his home and leaves into the night, was arrested, brought back, and as the police stood there with John, with the bishop, and said, are these yours? The bishop looks at the flatware and says, yes, but I gave them as a gift. And actually, John, you forgot the candlesticks I gave you. And goes into his house and gets the golden candlesticks and gives it to him. Not only did that bishop save him from jail, not only did he rescue him from the position that he was in, he abounded him in grace. And then here's what happened. He does not go on to live a life any way he wants. He does not go on to more crime. He does not say, okay, well that paid off, let me do whatever. He actually slowly becomes a man of character and sacrifice and love. In other words, when we get a clear picture of God's grace, we cannot help but look more and more like we were made to be, to look more and more like Jesus. When you see something amazing, you cannot help but move towards it, to be more like it. When we are in awe of Christ, we will become more like him. Jacob sees nothing short of the gospel. He dreams and dreams of how God works and is blown away by that and worships, and his life will still have sin all across it. We have a little shady encounter with his uncle where he marries two women, We'll see him wrestle God and be blessed and have a new name, but then we'll go on and see him be a pretty bad father. We'll see him make massive mistakes, and yet the Lord will be patient with him that by the end of his life, we will actually see Jacob be shaped by the relentless grace of God till one day, someday, he is standing before his maker knowing all but the grace of God would I have left you. Isn't that true for us? Let me pray. Father in heaven, We long to find you more beautiful. We long for our hearts to be on fire for your glory. And so often we find other things more beautiful. So often we are distracted by what's going on. So often we turn Christianity into something that it's not. But Lord, help us. Help us respond to this picture of grace in the appropriate way. 
Help us to be in awe of you, be people who can't help Jesus but speak your name to ourselves, to our family, and to others. Help us to remember your works and to recount them to all around us. Help us cling to those in the midst of hard times, in the midst of wilderness journeys. Lord, help us. Help us to see, to give more of our lives to you, to submit to the king and actually know that's beauty and that's freedom because you are the good king who loves his people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.